ascent. Psalms 123, and we're in the fourth psalm that we've looked at in this series, actually fifth psalm tonight. And I uh, hope you take some good, nights, uh, good notes this evening. And if someone next to you doesn't have a, a Bible or King James Version Bible, or perhaps doesn't have the Old Testament, please be kind enough and conscientious enough to share your Bible with them, help them find their place tonight. Psalms 123. Are you there? Let's read this together as a congregation. It's only four verses, but they're powerful verses. They are, they, if, if you let these verses get a hold, especially verse 3, it's their life trans, transformational. So let's read it together, if you would please, in English. Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hands of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so her eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease with the contempt of the proud. I mistakenly said verse 3. I meant verse 2. I want you to notice a phrase there. I hope you'll underline that if you've never underlined it before. In verse 1, he talks about our eyes being lifted up to God. He talked about that in Psalms 120, 121. Uh, he says, I will lift up my eyes into the hills whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. But he tells us how to fixate our eyes. This is the key to the verse, the, the passage. He says, as the eyes of servants, not a servant, the eyes of all servants. As the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters. It takes us back, and we'll see that tonight. It takes us back to how submissive servants, obedient servants, had their eyes fixated on the hands of their masters for their command, for what to do, what was next. He says, as the eyes of servants are upon the hand of their masters and as the eyes of a maiden are in the hand of our mistress, so our eyes are upon, wait upon the Lord our God. And so tonight, I want to just preach you tonight and have a Bible study time with you on the eyes of servants. The eyes of servants tonight. Father, we ask this evening in a very special, in a very personal way that God, you'd meet with us. I'm so thankful for Heritage Baptist Church. Lord, this is your church. And you love it, and you gave yourself for it. And Lord, you love your church so much, you gave yourself for it that you might wash it and cleanse it through the sanctifying of the washing of water by the word. And the first thing I pray for tonight, in accordance with what you want, Lord, is that you'd cleanse and purify and sanctify your church, that you might present your church to yourself as a glorious church without spot, or wrinkle. And Father, we pray this morning, this evening, that you allow your word, that we will allow your word to work on our hearts, to sanctify us, to purify us, to prick our hearts. And maybe for some who are not saved tonight, that Lord, they would be born again by the incorruptible seed of your word. We're asking tonight that we'll give reverence to your word. We're asking tonight that you'll take us from being just hearers of the word, but doers also. 
And we pray you'll take us tonight to look in that perfect law of liberty and to behold what manner of men we are. And to realize tonight that as we look at that perfect law of liberty that leads us in understanding pure religion and undefiled before God is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. I pray that tonight that God we will allow your word to help us keep us back from presumptuous sins. To help us Lord realize tonight that the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is right rejoicing the heart. The statue of the Lord are right, rejoicing heart. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise so simple. And Father, we need wisdom tonight. And Father, we need purification. And God, we need, we need to humble our hearts before you. And that's something we have to do. Because the Bible says, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, they may exalt you in due time. And Father, we pray, God, that you'll help us to have a reverential and respectful spirit and attitude towards the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of truth. We pray that, God, you'll help us to undergird this church with prayer and supplication. Paul said, I will that men pray, that, that the first of all men would pray, and they would, that prayers and supplications, intercession, giving thanks be made for all men. We pray right even now that we'll lift up our hearts before God in prayer, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. We pray for cleansing of our lives, and we pray tonight that, that the power of the word would work in our hearts, and we pray that, God, we'd be a word-filled people. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly in all wisdom. And, God, we pray through this that we would recognize the importance of the principles found herein. And then, Lord, with this, we pray that you would just uh, speak to our hearts and prepare us for the upcoming missions conference. And God, that we perhaps would be more mission-centric than we've ever been before. And we realize that, Lord, we don't need to rely on a missions conference once a year to fire us up on mission. We should be mission-centric 365 days a year and filled with a desire of advancing the gospel, seeing people saved. Thank you, Lord, that all through this week we've seen people saved and people brought to Christ. And Lord, we, even as we sang about today, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. And so tonight we pray that, uh, Lord, we can leave tonight and say as the psalmist did last, we saw last week, I, will, I, I, I was glad when they sent it to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And so, Lord, speak to us where we're at tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going higher. Amen. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. I'm going higher. And uh, Psalms 120, as we started the series, we saw the psalmist was, went higher in prayer and supplication as he, and dependence upon God as he realized that he was living, he was sojourning in Mesek and dwelling in the tents of Kedar. He was in a place of darkness. In Psalms 121, the psalmist went higher in faith and dependence as he sought God's protection for his life. He just realized he was in a difficult spot. He needed to go higher. In Psalms 122, we saw last week, the psalmist went higher in his respect and love for the house of God. And so tonight, we're back in Psalms 123. We're in the songs of degrees and the psalms of descent and of ascent there. And we, we recognize as we look at this that we see the pilgrims and priests as they made their respective way up the hill of Jerusalem and they made their way up the steps of, to the temple. They resolved that they were going higher in faith and going higher in dedication. The Christian life, God wants us to go higher. He doesn't want you going backwards. He doesn't want us going in, in, in regression. He wants us going higher. We know sometimes we go backwards and we know sometimes regression happens, but God's goal for our life is that we're going higher in Jesus Christ and going higher in the Word of God. And so tonight, tonight we're, in a, we're in Psalms 123. We're in a needy place. Someone 
as we look at this psalm, we find that the psalmist here is in a very needy place. He's praying for mercy. He's praying for help. He says in verse 1, unto thee I lift up my eyes. He talks about in verses 3 and 4, being exceedingly filled with contempt from others. And uh, as we look at this tonight, we realize that he's in a hurting place. Someone has aptly said this about the psalms. They said, for every sigh, there is a psalm. And I like that. I think every time we just get to the place, we feel like, my life is so tough. For every sigh, there's a psalm. One of the great commentators on the psalms, uh, Dr. Perone, said this about Psalms 123. He said, this psalm is either the sigh of the exile towards the close of the captivity, looking in faith and patience for the deliverance, which he hoped was now at hand, or it's the sigh of those who, having returned, were still exposed to the scorn and contempt of Samaritans and others who harass, harass, and insulted the Jews. You know, it seems like you come out of you come out of one fire, and all of a sudden you're in another fire. You ever been there? Amen. You know, you come out of one fire, and then you're in another fire. You feel like you've been in one difficult situation. Now you're in another difficult situation. And he talks about here the eyes of servants looking to the hands of their masters, and the eyes of a handmaiden looking to the eyes of her mistress. Tonight, we want to see how this analogy in verse 2 speaks to you and me of how we should look to God during times of difficulties and trials. How to look to God for help and how to get your eyes in the right place. I want you to see three things tonight very simply this evening from this psalm. Notice number one, we want to see the disquieted soul. The disquieted soul. Look at verses 3 and 4 tonight. In verse 3, in the latter part of verse 3, he says, We are exceedingly filled with contempt. In verse 4, he says, Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. The psalmist is saying we're exceedingly filled. The idea there is someone who is eaten to the fill. They're full. They've eaten to their heart's content. They cannot eat any more of. And he's using this description to describe that in their soul, they are filled up. They are consumed with the contempt of other people. The contempt and scorning of the proud, perhaps as, as the commentators have said, perhaps of the contempt of those who saw them returning from captivity or those who were in captivity and feeling the scorn and contempt of others. Now, the word contempt is when there is uh, derision, disrespect, mocking, and hatred towards someone or something. You know, we talk about, uh, some do hear this phrase, they say, well, when a spe- person speaks out of turn in court, the judge can t- accuse them of saying, hey, you're, you're in contempt of court, and that could result in some jail time because they're speaking disrespectfully or out of turn there. And the psalmist is talking about how he felt spiritually, that he felt the contempt of those that are against them. In Psalms 31, 18, David said this, let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. In Proverbs 18, 3, Solomon said this, When the wicked cometh, then cometh also contempt, and with ignominy or disgrace or disrespectfulness cometh reproach. Now, when we think of contempt, I tell you the first person came to my mind as I think about contempt and what the psalmist is talking about here. I I thought about Nehemiah chapter 4, if you'll turn over there with me. I thought about Nehemiah chapter 4 because Nehemiah chapter 4 speaks to us about the contempt that Nehemiah and the Jews felt as they just started construction on the wall, if you'll turn there with me. In Nehemiah chapter 4 verses 1 to 7, we have a sense of what Nehemiah was feeling at that moment time. And uh, you'll notice here some things I want to read about. He says in chapter 4 verse 1, 
But it came to pass. Now before that, it talks about, uh, it was a very encouraging chapter in chapter 3. Because in, the encouragement we have is that all the Jews got together and, they, and next unto him, next unto them, they just got together and started saying, you know what, we're, we're going to get on board with what Nehemiah's vision is. And we're going to help rebuild the walls, and we're going to repair the gates, and we're going to remove the rubble and all that. We realize it's hard work, and the perimeter of, of the entire city of Jerusalem was a great task. But the people in chapter 3, it's a great encouraging chapter. They said we're going to rebuild the gates, and we're going to get involved with that. And we, we go to chapter 3, verse 32, and it says, Between the going up of the corner to the sheep gate, repaired the goldsmiths and the merchants. I mean, just on and on and on. We read in chapter 3 about everyone coming alongside of each other, and, and they had distrust maybe in the past, but now they're alongside of each other to rebuild the walls. But then it says in chapter 4, it came to pass that when Samballot heard that we built the wall, notice this, he was wroth and took great indignation and he mocked the Jews. I mean, Samballot and uh, his friends, they had contempt for Nehemiah. They had contempt for the rebuilding of the wall. They had contempt for the city leaders and the priests and the Levites, that they were all joining together and rebuilding the walls of God. And so he says in verse 2, he says, he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria, and he asked these questions which were speaking in a condescending manner against the Jews, and spoke against Nehemiah's leadership, and spoke against what was going on there. And he says, what do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end of the day when they revived the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned. Listen, he spoke in contempt of what was going on. He had wrath. He had indignation. He was mocking the Jews. And you know, as we look at that today and we go back to Psalm 23, I just want to remind you tonight, that's what the devil does. The devil hates it when something goes on for God. Amen? The devil hates it that people get saved. The devil hates it when people get enrolled in discipleship. The devil hates it when someone like a Jason Ritchie goes to an area that's been known for its pagan practices and starts a church. The devil hates it when churches get started. The devil hates it when souls get saved. The devil hates it when the word of God is preached publicly and privately. The devil hates it when we have so winning rallies. The devil hates it when people pledge your money to faith promised missions. The devil hates it when a man of God has vision, wants to exercise faith like Nehemiah. The devil hates it when building programs are, 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 are initiated. The devil hates it when you and I get to church. Listen, tonight, if you haven't figured this out, the devil hates the church. And the devil hates you, and the devil hates me, and the devil hates any desire you have for serving God. The devil's against that. In John 15, verses 18 to 21, we saw that earlier this morning. But Jesus said, if the world hates you, you knew that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated you. Hey, listen, I'm going to wake you up tonight. This is it, okay? Contemporary Christianity says be good friends with the world. Hey, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You need to be friendly, but you need to, you need to be friendly, but not be friends of the world. You need to be friendly to people, and that's why we have friend days, but you're not to be the friend of the world. Hey, listen, some of us need to decide today, we're going to take a step back and realize we're not going to mimic the world. We're not going to look like the world. We're going to look like servants of Jesus Christ. We're going to look like his disciples and God's people. And we have to understand today, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. We must understand tonight that the world passes away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I'm going to tell you what, the world is filled with fads and the world is filled with things that are trendy. But I'm going to tell you, that's not the trends that we're seeking for. It's the truth of Jesus Christ we're promoting. It is not the fads we're promoting. It's the fundamental 
fundamentals of the word of God. We have to understand fads go away, but the truth prevails. And the will of God for you and I is that we advance the gospel and we preach Jesus Christ and we lift him up and we just determine that we're going to do everything we can to reach people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen, when you start something for God, you want to do something for God, there are those who stand on the sideline and speak in contempt of those things. And that's what the psalmist is feeling like. He says, man, we're just coming out of captivity and we're trying to get our life back together. And listen, they're speaking contemptuously about us and they're saying bad things about it. And he said, our soul feels exceedingly filled with their contempt of the proud. Notice we go back to Nehemiah here and Samballot. Uh, it speaks about some things. I want to give you some things a little bit more. Notice in verse 2, in chapter 4, verse 2, he mocks their strength. The devil says this, oh, look at them. He says this, he said, uh, what do these feeble Jews? The devil puts in your mind, I'm nobody. The devil puts your mind, I can't speak. The devil puts your mind, I can't go. The devil puts your mind, I'm too, I'm, I'm too shy, whatever it may be. He said, what do these feeble Jews, what do they think they're doing? The devil speaks contemptuously by our strength. By the way, aren't you glad tonight, without Jesus Christ, we can do nothing, amen? It's not our strength, but his strength alone. And then notice the devil not only mocks our strength, but notice something else here. He mocked their courage. He said, will they fortify themselves? He said, will they, can they find any courage? Will they, will they go on? He mocks their courage. He mocks their strength. He mocks their giving and their sacrifice. Look what happens here. What do these feeble Jews, what will they fortify? What will they sacrifice? And listen, you're going, to be, you're going to be going through turmoil over the next two weeks here because if you're in faith promised missions, you realize that faith promised missions is a, is a biblical command because in Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, you've given once and again. And listen, faith promised missions is not that we just do it one time. It's once and again and again. And so as we consider that, you know, you're thinking in your mind, well, you know, I've got to take care of this. I got to take care of that. And so the devil is going to speak contemptuously against faith promised mission. And someone's going to come whisper to you. Might even be somebody in church who doesn't really agree with, they're not really for it. And they're going to say, well, you know, I'll give my missions money directly to the mission. I'll do this. Listen, all your giving should be through the local New Testament church. That's biblical giving, okay? You study your Bible, it should be through the local New Testament church. Don't start your own campaign and do your little thing there and go outside the auspices of the local New Testament church. It begins with your tithe and from your tithe it goes to your offerings there. That's why but the Bible says over Malachi 3.10, well, a man robbed God, and wherein have we robbed him? We've robbed him in tithes and in offerings, he said there. And so, we misunderstand the devil's going to speak contemptuously about sacrifices there. And then notice something else. He spoke against their strength, and he spoke against their courage, he spoke against their giving and sacrifice, and then he spoke against their resolve. You know, sometimes you just, you just, you know, like our teenagers got back from camp, bless God, and they, they're, they're on fire for God. I mean, our teenagers are just on fire for God, and there's some great testimonies a bunch of them gave on Friday night. I was just very encouraged on Friday night when I heard some things from our teenagers. But listen, the devil's already whispering in their ears. Look what he did here. He said, will they make an end in a day? He said, you know what he's saying there? They can't get it done. They can start, but they won't finish. They can get going, but they're not going. Will they make an end in a day? He says, at the end of the day, they're not getting anything done. They, they, they have no resolve. They can't get things done. And so, you know, and that's why some people don't get anything done. They just, they let the devil get a hold of them in that. And then they said something else here. He said, uh, will they make it in a day? And then he said, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? He says, can, look, look at this junk here. The whole city of Jerusalem looks like a garbage pit. It's rubbish. And the remains of a fire. And he says, can they get it done? And so he's speaking contemptuously against them. And I'm just saying this evening, as we look at that, the devil disquiets our soul. When you're exceedingly filled with contempt, your soul is in turmoil. 
It disquiets your soul. You find it hard to pray. You find it difficult to go on and serve Jesus Christ, sir. And so, notice Nehemiah. This, this kind of worked to Nehemiah. He was a great man of courage, but look what it did to Nehemiah. I mean, Nehemiah felt this. Look at verse 4. He said, hear, O our God, for we are despised. He said, man, I'm feeling it. He says, turn the reproach upon their own head. He's praying, he says, God, I feel, despi- I feel very discouraged by this. And then notice verse 10, as things are going along, they're praying, by the way. They're praying for God's strength and praying for God's result. And we get to verse 10, they made their prayer. And then notice Judah said, the entire nation Judah, the strength of the bearer of burdens is decayed. We don't have the strength. They, they let the devil and the words of the, of the contemptuous ones work against them. They said the strength of the bearer of burdens is decayed. He says, listen, our, our strength is dying out. And he says, there's much rubbish. They said, there's too much to do. There's too much cleaning to do. Too much work to do. There's much rubbish so that we are not able to build the wall. Listen, that's the devil's desire. When you're exceedingly filled with contempt, he tells you, you can't get it done. You're too small. You've got too much of this. You've got too much of that. And he builds all these negative thoughts in our mind thinking we can't get it done. We see tonight how the devil disquiets our soul. But go back with me, Psalms 123. And notice, secondly, we don't only see a disquieted soul. Notice the desperate supplication. There comes a point in time when after the devil's done all his talking, he's poisoned our mind, and he's filled us with all his toxic comments, there comes a time we've got to, we've got to walk away from that, amen? We've got to realize we're in a desperate situation. We've got to realize we've got to do something about it. And so the psalmist did. He said in verse 3, he said, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Listen, they wanted mercy. They wanted God's help. Desperate praying is pleading for God's mercy in our life and in our situation. Listen, we need mercy. We want God to divine favor. We want God's pity. We want God to make his face to shine upon us. And so notice, twice he pleads for mercy. In verse 2 he says, we will wait upon our, 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 our God until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O God. And this in desperate praying is pleading for God's help. And desperate praying is asking for mercy and begging God for only he can do for us. I like what Matthew Henry said about this. He said, the greatest of men must turn beggars when they have to do with Christ. Uh, I like what, you know, something I've said many, many times. You know, God puts us in a place. We must pray like we're in a trial. God sends his trials to teach us how to pray. And so they're at the situation where they're realizing there's some desperate praying because they, they came to a standstill and they weren't moving and they weren't making motion of anything. They were just stuck where they're at. Nehemiah was stuck where they're at in chapter 4. And so they had to go to prayer and there's desperate praying. And desperate praying is when we get to the place in life, we realize we've got to get God's help when we're in serious trouble. Now what is desperate praying? Well, notice number one, look at Psalms 123 verse 1. Notice first one, verse 1 is focus praying. He said unto thee, Lift up by my eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Now he's helping us to understand something that we saw last week about prayer. The, the church and Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12 verse 5, it says this. Peter was in prison. Peter was in an impossible situation. He was bound. And the Bible says, but prayer was made of the church unto God. We must understand that it sounds so basic. He said, well, you know we do that. But notice the psalmist saying there, unto thee, unto thee. And where's your prayer directed tonight? Unto thee, it must be focused upon God. It's unto the God who is, the God who is in heaven, the God who is faithful and just, the God who only is wise. It's unto God. It's unto God who can. Who can. There's nothing too hard, as Brother Richie said, that God cannot do. There's nothing that God cannot do. God who's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. It's focused praying. It's realized unto thee. Look again at verse 1. Unto thee lift up mine eyes. You know what, what focused praying is realized? I've got to get my eyes unto the Lord. I've got to be focused on God. I've got to realize my eyes are unto God. 
I've got to re- I'm just telling God, God, if you don't help me, nobody else can. And realizing tonight, we don't have a list of people we're going to call and ask them for their second opinion, third opinion, and fourth opinion about what's going on. We get our eyes on the Lord, focused praying and saying, God, I, I, my eyes are upon you. But notice, secondly, it's not only focused praying, it's frantic praying. It's like Jacob when he was at Peniel. He sent his wives and his children ahead. It was all by himself. He was alone. And frantic praying with Jacob saying, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Have you been there? Have you been there? I will not let thee go except thou bless me. He was like the nobleman in, who we find in, in John chapter 4 who walked 15 to 20 miles from Capernaum to Cain of Galilee to get to Jesus. And this is what he said, Sir or Lord, come down ere my son die. It's like the Syrophoenician woman who prayed, Have mercy upon me, O thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Her praying was specific. Her praying was desperate. Hey, listen, desperate praying is praying in the Holy Ghost. Hey, desperate praying is realizing that, 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 that we know everything is dependent upon God to, to help us. Desperate praying is praying, saying, God, there is no plan B. Desperate praying is wrestling with God. Desperate praying is like Jabez said, oh, that thou wouldst bless me indeed and enlarge my coast and that thy hand may be upon me that I may not see evil. Hey, desperate praying is realizing that, that we, we're going to keep wrestling with God until he says yes. Desperate praying is praying that works. We've got to work at it. Desperate praying is wrestling with God. Desperate praying is waiting on God. That's what he's doing here here. We're going to wait upon the Lord. Desperate praying changes circumstance. By the way, desperate praying changes us. Amen? It changes you and me. It changes our perspective and helps us get to the place of realizing we need God. I'm just saying tonight, he was at a place where he was frantic in his praying. He got to praying desperately. He says, God, I've got to have your help in my life. Listen, desperate praying, as we look at it tonight, it's focused, it's frantic, but lotus, it's fervent. Go back with me, James 5, 16. And I like how James, as he describes praying here, it's, he talked about fervent praying. The factual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, the first part, we've got to be righteous. We've got to be right with God, amen? We've got to be right with God. You can wrestle with God all you want, but if you're not right with God, you're going nowhere. That's why we need to be in a constantly living on the edge for Jesus. Making sure our life is what we're right with God. Now, other people may not think so, but you make sure your life is right with God according to the Word of God. He talks about being fervent. He says the factual fervent is one word in the Greek. Earnest prayer. Pouring your heart out. Seeking God. Philip Brooks said this, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of his higher willingness. I think of Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat, as he was surrounded by the Assyrians. Greatly outnumbered. Their city, the city of Jerusalem, was encircled by the Assyrians. 185,000 soldiers. No matter where you looked on the, on, the, on the walls of Jerusalem, they were surrounded below them with all these Assyrians. Jehoshaphat laid the matter out to God. He got a letter. In our modern day, it's like getting a lawsuit. He got served a letter. He says, don't, don't, don't follow Jehoshaphat. Don't listen to anything he says. He went to the temple of God. And he laid it out. And this is his prayer in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Now, he's being honest. He said, Lord, we're outnumbered. We have no might. We have no power. And sometimes we pray so cockily, we think we've got power. Listen, without God, we have no power. Amen. 
We're nobody without God. We better come to that conclusion. Listen, tonight, we're not going to build the church on our effort. Without him, we can do nothing. You're not going to grow in your Christian life. You're not going to have fruit in your Christian life. You're trying to do it in your own power. We've got to do it in the power of Jesus Christ tonight. We have no might. By the way, missions is not going to go on in our power. It's got to be in Jesus Christ. Notice something else. We have no might, but neither know we what to do. Now listen, sometimes we need to be transparent and say, God, I don't know what to do. We've got our plan B, plan C, plan D. Listen, there is no plan B here. They're encircled. We have no might. We don't know what to do. Listen, the best place to be is when you don't know what to do. But he said, our eyes are upon thee. Our eyes are upon thee. He's looking to God. I'm saying tonight we see desperate praying, but notice thirdly this evening. And this is the crux of our message tonight. We see the disquieted soul. They're filled, seemingly filled with the contempt of those who were proud and those who hated them. It's in verses 1 to 3, the desperate prayer of this psalmist. And you've got to bear in mind that the Jews, they quoted this psalm. This was one of the shorter psalms. They walked, up the, they walked up that incline of, to the city of Jerusalem. They're quoting this. They remember being there. We've got to remember the priests as they're walking up the temple steps. They remember being there. And we go from there, and we notice in verses 1 and 2, we see a determined sight. Because he's teaching us how to get our eyes on the Lord. And he's going to teach us that. And notice if you would again, as we look at verses 1 and 2. Unto thee lift up my eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Hey, by the way, aren't you glad God is on his throne? Amen. He's in the heavens. Unto thee lift up my eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. I mean, no matter what surprises us, nothing surprises God. No matter what changes may be, no matter how more powerful powers the powers in this world may be, they're not more powerful than God. I, my eyes are upon thee, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. And I think he found some security in the fact that God was in the heavens. God wasn't going to move, and God's throne wasn't going to be changed, and God's ch- throne wasn't going to be challenged, and God's power wasn't going to be challenged. And then he said, Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so are eyes. Three times, four times he talks about their sight and their eyes is to determine look. Now notice if you would in a determined sight, first of all, our attention. Spurgeon has some great thoughts about Psalms 123. You might want to look it up. Spurgeon, he said that the old authors classified Psalms 123 as what they said, the Oculus Sparrens, or the Psalm of the Eyes. The Psalm of Hope. The Psalm for Weary Eyes. Because for a long time, as we read this Psalm very carefully, the eyes of the people were on their problems. They got to the place where they looked at the problems so much, they just accepted the fact, they accepted the idea, not the fact, the idea, I guess we can't win. I guess the enemy's greater. I guess God doesn't care. I guess God doesn't, God's not going to intervene himself. And they had to get their eyes off the problem, get their eyes from looking down, to get their eyes from looking up. They had to get their eyes on the Lord himself. And so he's talking about our attention. And this evening as we look at that, where are your eyes tonight? Are they unto the Lord who's in the heavens or on the problem? And I just want to tell you this evening that we need to get our eyes in places that are essential about heaven. Number one, let's get our eyes on the fields that are white already to harvest. Amen. 
John chapter 4, verse 35. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes. And this evening, I want to challenge you this evening to look out and get your eyes on the fields wide into harvest. Lift up your eyes. Look at the fields. Get your eyes off the problems. Get your eyes off the things that are putting you down. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields where they're white, all ready to harvest. Hey, listen, if you want to go somewhere where there's opportunity and where something can be done, just go outside the walls of this church and look at the fields that are white, all ready to harvest. There's a lot of people who need to get saved. A lot of people near the gospel. Hey, the fields are white, all ready to harvest. You say, I've got nothing to do. Hey, there's some sowing to do. You say, I'm not sure what to do with my life. Hey, go on the mission field for six months, okay? And go li- learn to live by faith and trust God. Notice, secondly, we need to get our eyes into heaven. Look with me to Acts 7, verse 55 is Stephen. This is wonderful. We need to get our eyes on the harvest fields. We need to get our eyes onto heaven. It says this as they were, as the Jews picked up their stones. And this was at the temple. They're about to throw them out of the temple. The Bible says in Acts 7.55, but he being full of the Holy Ghost looked up steadfastly. He didn't look at the stones in people's hands. He didn't look at the problem, how difficult it was. The Bible says being filled with the Holy Ghost, he looked up steadfastly unto heaven. Notice what he saw. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. That encouraged him. Because normally when we read about Jesus being at the right hand of God, he's seated at the right hand of God. But Jesus stood because he said, son, you're coming home today. You don't have to be homesick for heaven anymore. You're coming home today. And Jesus stood there because in just a matter of moments, Stephen would lay down, he would lay down his life for the Lord and Jesus would receive him. And he would tell him, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But he had his eyes into heaven. I was reading 2 Corinthians 5 as I was preparing for tonight, just getting my heart ready. And I was just reminded about 2 Corinthians 5, those first eight verses remind us that uh, just speaking to us about being homesick for heaven. And uh, we've got to put off this earthly body which are, that we have, this tabernacle we have, and put on one that's eternal, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, which God has prepared for us. And we must get our eyes into heaven. We must look forward every day to the fact we're going to heaven. Let's not get our roots so deep here that we forget about the fact we're going to heaven. But notice something else. In Hebrews chapter 12, we've got to get our eyes on Jesus. Amen? Get our eyes on the Lord. Look at what he says in Hebrews chapter 12. <coughs> Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, that's great. All those heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, that great cloud of witnesses. He says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which is so easy to be set. He's talking about a runner who's got his eyes off the goal and off the finish line. And the weights and sins are pulling him down. And he said, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Then he said in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now why did he say that? Why did he say that to chapter 12? Because all the first 11 chapters, he's dealing with believers that have been pulled down by the weights of discouragement and the weights of sin and the, content, uh, the contentiousness of other people and they're filled with contempt. And he says, we've got to look to Jesus. And he says, listen, you get discouraged, you've got to look to Jesus. Gotta, and this is what he says in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, just get your eyes on Christ. He says, why? Because consider him, verse 3, consider him, he said, who endured such contradictions, sinners against himself, lest he be wearied and faint in your minds. He says, listen, Jesus himself could have, could have fainted, but he said he kept his eyes on the goal. And we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. So we see the attention. Our attention should be focused on the Lord. Our attention should be focused on getting to the race and finishing our, 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 our race there. But notice the analogy tonight, and we're done. Now, getting your eyes on Jesus, that's easy said. That's a cliche almost, if you would, in many ways. But he gives us an analogy. He said in verse 1, Unto thee lift up my eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. 
My eyes are on Jesus. My eyes are fixated on the Lord. I'm considering him who endured such contradiction of sinners, lest I be weary and faint in my own mind. But he gives this analogy because our, our idea of that, the psalmist had something great in mind in terms of how fixated his eyes were on the Lord. And he uses an analogy. Would you notice that in verse 2? As the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, the eyes of a maiden, the hand of her mistress. He used an analogy, a, a commonality that everybody in that audience that he wrote to understood. You see, eyes, servants realize a lot of times their master wouldn't talk to them. They might give them instructions once, but after that, they had to look at the hand motions. They had to look at the hand signals of their master. And the eyes of a servant or hand of, eyes of a maiden, handmaiden were fixated on their master. They realized if they took their eyes off and did not see the signal, they could miss exactly what they're told to do. And so if you notice tonight, the, the master's hand represented direction. The master's hand represented direction. For instance, the master as a servant was watching his, ser his master who would watch where his master is pointing. He would watch if his master said, come this way. He would watch if his master beckoned him because he spoke with his hand. There were certain hand signals in motion that the master did that represented direction for him. And we have to understand tonight that God gives us direction for our lives. Would you consider some things tonight with me? Look at Psalms 139. As we keep our eyes on the hand of the master for direction. In Psalms 139 verse 9 and 10, notice what he says there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy what? Hand lead me. Thy right hand shall hold me. Isn't that great? Even David understood that, that even though I'm a king, I've got to watch the, eye, the hand of my master. I like the song we sometimes sing from our hymnal, the refrain or the chorus, he leadeth me. Listen to what it says. He leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me. His faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. He, even the songwriter there understood something about the hand of the master. The hand of the master gives us direction. We must focus our eyes on his hands there. Notice secondly, the master's hand gives direction, but the master's hand gives provision. Every servant was bought out of the slave market. They were completely dependent upon that master to take care of them. They, they could not ask for their sustenance and their food when they felt like it. They had to look for the hand of their master. If he said this, it stopped. If he went like this, it was beckoning. If he went like this, it said it's time to eat. They looked to the hand of their master. It was time for me. He had these hand signals. And we find that the eyes of a servant and the eyes of a handmaiden uh, will look upon a maiden, will look to their mistress. They look for help. Notice some things we, we find in it because there's many references in the Bible about the hand of God in making provision or its goodness in our life. And aren't you glad tonight of God's hands on your life? Amen? Aren't you glad for God's hand upon your church and God's hand upon your family? I mean, we want the hand of God. We pray for that. And I think of Acts chapter 11, when, when the Bible says that Barnabas went to the city of Antioch there in Syria, and he went to see what God was doing. And, he, and the Bible describes it, the hand of the Lord was upon them, meant God's favor there. But notice some things we see about God's provision, favor with his hand. Notice Psalm 1611. 
Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. In Psalms 31.5, here's what the psalmist said. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. In Psalms 31.15, my times are in thy hand. In Psalms 37.24, though he fail, he said, though he fall, yet he shall not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Hey, the Lord's hand is, gives us direction, but the Lord's hand gives us provision. Hey, the Lord's hand is the hand that picks us up. The Lord's hand is the hand that gives us favor and his blessing. The Lord's hand that provides for all of our needs. Hey, listen, tonight he's talking about as we lift up our eyes and get our eyes on the Lord we're watching his hand he says as the eyes of servants look upon the hand of his master and the hands of a maiden look upon the hand of his mistress they're watching they're waiting they're looking for the next command the next motion the next signal is he giving direction is he going to provide my need what's he going to do we see the hand the hand of the master and direction the hand of the master and provision but I want you to consider this tonight I want you to consider me this evening the hand of the master and salvation because I remind you tonight, thank God for the hands of Jesus. His hand gives us provision, and his hand gives us direction. But I remind you tonight, those hands were wounded hands too. Those hands were wounded hands. Listen as we read the psalmist tonight. We read over in Psalms 22, verse 16. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Hey, those, the master's hands which gave direction and the master's hands which gave provision. Those hands are wounded hands. We read later on in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6. One shall say unto him, What are those wounds in thy hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. We read later on in John chapter 20 after Jesus was crucified and rose again from the dead. We read in John 20 about the great resurrection of our Savior from the dead. And uh, they were assembled together there in the upper room. And, and Thomas was not there. And the disciples saw Jesus and he showed them his hands. Remember that? He showed them his, the wounds in his hands, the wounds in his feet, the wound in his side. And they said, we saw the Lord. But Thomas was such a doubter. He said, except I see his hands and feet, I will not believe. And then Jesus came back another evening. And on that next evening, Thomas was there. And here's what we read here. Jesus speaking to Thomas said in John 20 verse 27, then saith he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands and reach hither thy hand and thrust into my side and be not faithless but believe me. Hey, can I tell you tonight, maybe we need to stop for just a minute and not just look at the hand of our master for our direction and look to the hand of our master for our provision. Maybe tonight we need to look at the hands of our master, those wounds in his hands, those wounds that are permanent, those scars that are there. And may we be reminded tonight, he was pierced in his hand for your sins and mine. Those hands shed blood for your sins and mine. And those hands were wounded and cartilage was pierced and bones were broken and blood came forth. And those hands, as we go to heaven one day, we'll see those same hands that were pierced for you and me. And we'll see those feet that were pierced for you and me. We'll be reminded tonight, those hands were wounded for our salvation. Wounded for me, wounded for me. Reminded the story of Oliver Cromwell. He sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes. He said, tonight at curfew, the bells will ring and you'll be slain. When curfew came, the man below that held the rope pulled with all his vigor as he normally would. He pulled down, but instead of hearing the gong hit the clapper, there was a thud. He pulled again, and all he heard was a thud. And he pulled again, this went on for several minutes. And finally they said, well, there's no sound of the bell. What do we do? So Oliver Cromwell, really, you're not sure what to do. And he said, well, maybe I'll do it again tomorrow night. 
Just a matter of minutes, descending from way at the top where the bell was, came a young woman whose hands were bloodied and bruised, maybe even broken. They found out this was the fiancé of the soldier who was sentenced for crimes. Cromwell heard about this noble, loving act of this young lady as she grasped the clapper with her hands and decided she's going to prevent the sound of the bell from happening. She showed those wounded hands to Oliver Cromwell and he looked at such love she had and the blood on her hands and all the wounds that she had. He said, tonight, curfew shall not sound. Tonight, because someone loved you, because someone tonight, their hands represented love. He said, tonight, curfew will not sound for your death. And I remind you tonight, if you're not saved, if you're not saved tonight, Jesus died for you and he shed his blood for you and he was wounded in his hands that you could be saved. And tonight, if you accept Jesus Christ, your Savior, curfew will not sound for you tonight because I remind you tonight, Jesus was wounded in his hands for your sins and for mine. He stretched out those hands on the cross and the nails with a great thud and you could hear the piercing of the flesh and the piercing of, of his bones and the piercing of the cartilage. And yet in spite of all that, Jesus endured all that for you and I. Consider him which endured such contradiction of sinners. The psalmist tonight, as we go back to Psalm 23, speaks to us when our soul is exceedingly filled. It's disquieted. It's overwhelmed. It's overcome. He says our soul is exceedingly filled with the contempt of the proud. For me tonight, it's the contempt of the devil. A devil's hatred against the church. Devil's hatred against your family, my family. Teenagers, the devil's contempt for your decision you made for him. He's going to fill you with contempt. And he said, I'm exceedingly filled. And all I know what to do is I need to go to God in desperate prayer and get my eyes upon the Lord. And my encouragement tonight is just to say like a psalmist, I'm going higher. Amen? I'm just going to go higher. Yeah, it might be a little bloody and it might be a little hurtful, but my eyes are not on me and my eyes are not going to be on my problem. I'm going upwards. I'm ascending up. And the psalmist, as he, as he wrote this, I think, and many who would, re, would repeat this psalm as they made their way up the temple steps and walked to Jerusalem, they just decided, you know what? The, this man who wrote this psalm, he was in deep straits. But listen, we're going to go higher. We're not going to let the, our soul, which is filled with exceeding contempt, pull us down. We're just going to keep going higher. and We're going to keep going higher. We're going to keep going higher. We're going to go up and we're going to get our eyes on the Lord. And we're going to get our eyes on the Lord in such a way our eyes are upon his hands. We're going to watch the hands of our Lord and we're going to be moved with tears as we consider those hands that were wounded for us and those hands which give us direction and those hands which give our provision and those hands which guide us and lead us. He leadeth me and leadeth me by his right hand. He leadeth me. Listen, let's get our eyes on the hand of the Lord and realize tonight it's his hand that leads us where we're going to go. Keep going higher. Keep going higher. Watch his hand. Watch his hand. Make sure the right hand of God is on your life. Make sure it's on what you do. And pray for the hand of God upon our church. Keep going higher. Keep going higher.